Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of Elixir Mix. This week on the panel, we have Alan Weimar. Hello. And me, Sasha Wolf. And we have a special guest this week, that is Peter Ulrich. So Peter, why don't you tell everybody who you are, why you're here, and what we are going to talk about today. All right, thanks folks for having me. Well, I'm Peter Ulrich. Uh, you might have seen me on Twitter and Elixir Forum and stuff. I'm a senior software engineer at Remote. I live in the Netherlands and I have a blog on peterulrich.com that I like to fill every week or every two weeks with a new blog post. Recently, a lot about Postgres, and that will also be one of the topics today. Well, I guess in particular will be full text search and index, uh, sorry, name search with Postgres and why you don't need Elasticsearch maybe. All right, thank you very much for having me today. I'm frequently surprised at how many companies are running their apps in production without any way of knowing when things go wrong or who are running them in production and not really having a way of knowing where things are slowing down. That's why I recommend that people use a service like AppSignal. AppSignal plugs into your application seamlessly, whether you're using Rails or Phoenix or something else, and provides you a way of knowing when things go wrong, when things are going slow, and what other problems your application may be facing so that you can fix them and provide a seamless user experience for those who are using your app. So whether you're starting a new app or working on an existing app, you should check out AppSignal and see how it can work for you. Go to AppSignal.com. That's A-P-P-S-I-G-N-A-L.com. We we're happy to have you, and it's just I couldn't fail to notice that like I pronounced your last name German, you pronounced your own last name English. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> that was weird. <laughs> I like to make it easy for uh, English-speaking hosts, so I say Ulrich, but actually not German. It's Ulrich. That's true. Yeah, but nobody can pronounce that, so I don't even try anymore. Ellen, do you want to try? I think I went to school with somebody, and we call him Ulrich, Ulrich or Ulrich. Okay, exactly. sorry, sorry for derailing. <laughs> Mo <laughs> moving on. <laughs> yeah, moving on. Um, Ulrich, Ulrich. <laughs> Ulrich. It's just going to be the rest of the episode. <laughs> okay, so, yeah, I saw your blog posts, and I feel they're out, out there in the dev community, at least from my experience, people reach for Elasticsearch very quickly. It's like, always says, hey, you want to do full text search? Why don't you do Elasticsearch? Pop! It's already, ooh, it's already added to the stack. It's already a Docker Compose file. How did that happen? Right? So how, maybe give us a bit of a story. Like, how did you, how did you end up uh, trying to do this in Postgres? Was it more of like a personal interest thing? Was it a work thing? What's the story behind this? Well, it started with the last blog post that I wrote before this, which was about name search and especially the I like and the similarity operators on Postgres. And I, I, I tend to I tend to use my blog post to also learn something new. And I just wanted to dive into how to do text search in Postgres, basically. And when I yeah when I wrote the first blog post about name search. I realized that the methods that I'm describing there, the I like and the similarity operators, they don't quite work if you have very long texts. And I knew about full text search with Postgres, but I'm, yeah, I'm actually, I used it once in production. Uh, we actually replaced Elastic Search with it because uh, it was too expensive. And we thought, you know, we already have a Postgres database. Why should we use an external service for a very small, you know, like short abstract uh, text sense. search, basically? Yeah. So I took the second blog post then, uh, which is about full text search. And I just started to dive into it. And pretty quickly, I realized that there isn't really one resource, like one blog post or book or something that explains all the facets, all the, the use cases of full text search with Postgres. And there were lots of different articles which always highlighted single things, but not a single complete guide actually to Postgres uh, full text search. So I used that 
challenge. And it took me three weeks, to be honest, to write that like four and a half thousand word long article in which I dive into many, many different use cases. So if you only have a single language, for example, there's a very easy approach to that. If you have like a fixed set of languages, it's also easy. But then what happens if you want to add dynamic uh, languages dynamically? So you have a forum and then people decide, I want to t uh, to post in Spanish now or in Italian or something. Mm -hmm. Then you need to to be dynamic in that way. So that took me a long time to figure out. And uh, in the blog post, I explain it how, and maybe I can explain it to you later too. Yeah, I, I briefly dabbled with, with something like that. Uh, and I, at that point, I already realized there's like different uh, algorithms for tokenization you can use, or like, which depending on the language do different things. So it's actually quite rabbit hole to go into. Uh, you you might think, hey, full text search, how hard can it be, right? <laughs> well, as, exactly. as, as usual, there's complexity under the hood, which is not appar uh, apparent from a first glimpse at it. Um, I'm actually interested to hear a bit more about what you just said. You said at this one time at work, you actually replaced like an elastic search with a full text search. Maybe, maybe you can tell us a little bit about that and also like what you learn from that and how that uh, then contributed like maybe to in, in details to the to your blog post of course yes so the my employer before remote was a company in germany in cologne and we had job stud uh, students jobs for students basically so we had job um, descriptions and then students could apply for them and work in these jobs for a couple of hours uh, a week or so and so we had these descriptions of the jobs and they were always like between 100 and 300 words approximately and we wanted to make that searchable and i joined a team that used a very old ruby monolith and they had problems updating the ruby monolith and they Classic. wanted to Exactly. They were still on like two Ruby 2.2 or 2.3, 2.3, I think. Yeah. When already the latest was 2.6, but I'm not a Ruby developer. I'm sorry if I get these versions wrong, but it was old and we couldn't update it and everything was breaking and nobody wanted to touch it. So what we decided was to replace that old monolith using the strangler pattern where you extract smaller parts of the, the giant monolith. You identify like small components, uh, functionality components, like for example, this uh, text search. And you try to extract extract it into a new system. It could be a new monolith or it could be a microservice. In our case, it was a microservice. So we identified this particular text search, this job search, basically. And we saw that we used Elasticsearch for the text search. And also that Elasticsearch version was like two years behind. We couldn't update because of the Ruby library and so on. So it was like a big, uh, big problem. And we decided, okay, instead of first updating to the latest Ruby version and then updating the library so that we can talk to the latest Elasticsearch uh, version, we decided to just get rid of Elasticsearch because we already had a Postgres database with all the data lying in it. And we just, just quote unquote, needed to add a full text search on top of it for a single language, which was German at the time. And we also kind of knew the what, like, sorry, what I meant is we added the text ourselves. So we didn't have external user input, like people okay. writing blog posts or forum posts. So we knew that the content that was in that text was safe, so to say. So we could easily implement it ourselves and didn't really have to worry that much about the security or the, the safety implications. But also that's actually not a big problem if you implement full text search. So yeah, we it was a very controlled experiment. So we decided to just slowly replace the Elasticsearch search with our own full text search there. 
And it worked pretty well. I mean, we had a, a switch over, so to say. At one point, we just decided, okay, from now on, we're going to do all the job search requests. We're going to handle them in our new microservice. So there was the, the strangler pattern again, where you, at one point, you just turn off the old service and it worked flawlessly. So that was the first time I, I um, dabbled with full text search. But it was one of these things, as you said, Sasha, it's you just you know that you need it or you hear about it and then you just do some basic research on it. You understand how it works. You set up the basic logic, maybe write one or two tests and then you just deploy it to production. And you don't really go into the details of everything and why it works and how it works and how you can improve it because also for us, we had a couple of thousand maybe texts to search through. So it wasn't millions of documents mm-hmm. and even performance efficiency it wasn't that big of a concern to us. So we could easily deploy it. And now, once I wrote the blog post, I thought, okay, I want to deep a little bit. Uh, I want to dive a little bit deeper into this topic. So I did, and uh, I wrote a very long blog post about it. Yeah, nice. I'm, I'm always kind of amazed by how people find the motivation and the capacity to write these long-ass blog posts because I can't do that. I don't try to start my own blog, and I was like, oh man, this is like actually finishing a blog post is. I'm not built for that. Yeah. So no, I, <laughs> congratulations I, I, for, for this, seriously. <laughs> thank you. No, but you're right. It, it takes quite a long time, especially if you do these deep dives, as I tend to do. This particular, the full text blocks, full text search blog post, it was maybe three weeks, like three weekends. So in total, maybe 20 hours of my own time. Yeah. And then my regular blog posts, that, which tend to be a little bit shorter, even those are like eight hours. So like one Saturday or mm, Sunday. Mm. So yeah, yeah. I, I spend a lot of time on these, but I learn a lot this as well. So that's why it's worth it for me. Yeah, makes makes sense. I just blabble about things in podcasts. That works better for me. <laughs> sure. <laughs> you let other people speak. Exactly, exactly. That's how I learn new things. Psh, don't tell nobody that. Um, but to come back to, uh, before maybe we go into like the, the nitty gritty details of, of what you uncovered, is there anything you would say, like especially working with full text search, or maybe also with that, but like one use case you just talked about, you where you now know, hey, I wish I would have known that before. You know, like some some common some common wisdom or some pitfalls or anything like that. Where like, hey, when I started learning about this, this would have been so helpful. You know, uh, yes, not really related to full text search, but while I was doing the research on this topic, I also had to work a lot with indices in Postgres. So with Jin index and uh, in general indices. And I really finally understood how they work and how you can make them work and how you can force them to work sometimes. And it was quite interesting. So my, my biggest learning there was basically if you have any query, like if you, for example, look for a short string in the database, for like a name, for example, if you have a where statement, you know, where my user's name equals that, what, what's on the right side? Like the thing you compare it to, that thing needs to be in your index, almost one-to-one. So when you have a full text search, for example, you can create TS vectors of your of your text. So it's like a very simplified version of your text. It's it's actually called lexemes, which is the basic foundation element of the of the language that we're using. It doesn't really make sense when you see it, but it makes sense in, I guess, the linguistic terms. And so whatever you 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 want to find, like that thing needs to be in your index. So I I had a lot of problems where I, I thought my index should work, but then Postgres decided not to use it because, for example, there was a variable somewhere. Like I had uh, I created a, a TS vector, as, yeah, TS vector, and the language that I used, I used from a different field, and that field was dynamic. So my vector itself was dynamic, and if it's dynamic, Postgres doesn't create an index for it because it thinks it can change. And I had to do a lot of 
tweaking to get it to work. But eventually I did. And uh, that was one of these things where I'm just saying, if you learn more about this topic, about full text search, you will also learn a lot about more indexes and these kind of things. So it's, it's quite helpful there. I actually have an anecdote to share here, which is not related to full text search, but like the importance of, of what you just said with like all the fields on the right, because we had this one performance issue at a, at a place I worked at where like some queries were super slow. And like it was also like depending on user input, it was so weird. Like if a specific collection, a selection of, of, of fields, basically, if you filter by that, then that search was super slow. And at the end of the day, like with like query explainers, it turns out, hey, we're actually missing this one field in this one index over here. So it's actually doing like a sequential scan of a whole table, which has millions of entries, but only for like this one particular thing. Otherwise, it fell back to some parts of the query and then it only did like a smaller scan. And that, that was then fine. Yeah, indexes is like sometimes feels like a dark art. And I feel that it's probably one of the, the, the areas that I think that's what you're trying to say, where people would probably benefit from at least having a basic understanding of how like indexes work and how Postgres chooses to use an index or rather any, any relational database and when maybe some types of indexes make sense and when others. I mean, at the end of the day, we are all not database administrators, but still I feel nowadays with like with the cloud being as readily available as it is, people just spin up a Postgres in AWS or in Google Cloud or whatever. And then there is no <laughs> database administrator which screams at you and says like, hey, we need an index here, right? So some of those things, I feel, is a topic where the average backend developer really could benefit a lot from, from adding a, at least like a more nuanced understanding than just, hey, let's slap an index on it. That's interesting too, right? I, that's actually what I tried to do is speed up some queries on a project. I just started adding indexes and basically running queries and then seeing the explain and then adding indexes. And actually, I found the biggest boost, I don't know if this is weird, but the biggest boost was when I went from a T2 micro to a T2 small. <laughs> I don't know why, but a micro to a small was huge uh, spin up, and I don't know, like doubled or tripled the uh, the output. So sometimes indexes are not enough. So maybe try bumping up the database also. And I don't know what you guys understand T two small and T two micro. It seems big enough that there was a noticeable thing. It was just hanging sometimes for, for some weird reason. Uh, so you went from the big instance to the small instance, and that's no, no, up the, the micro is the smallest one. So a T two is just basically like a development one. It's good, like. My client is very small, right? It's not like billions of users or something, not even hundreds and thousands of users. It's just like a couple hundred users a month. And they're, I mean, it's enough for T2 Micro to handle, except for for some reason, the, some of the queries were running very small, very slow. Even adding indexes to it didn't make much difference. But I just bumped up from a T2 Micro to a T2 small in AWS. And it was like, it was like when you, if you guys remember the first time when you when you take a hard drive, a spinning hard drive, and then put it in an SSD, it was like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was okay, like the feeling. Okay. I was like, whoa, what, what the heck happened? This thing is zooming nowadays. It's amazing. It sounds like something that maybe you just re reached your RAM limits, right? Like where it had to it, it swapping. Been, yeah. In general, you probably shouldn't use any T instance in a production system, and also a T my T two micro is probably not a good idea. But yeah, anyways, just just saying. Maybe an extra should could uh, right <laughs> if it works that. it works. So if indexes aren't maybe, working out for you, try to bump the database instance is kind of my antidote to that one. Yeah, okay, makes sense. But it's it's so tricky because Postgres is such a good piece of software and it makes it so easy for you to just set up your uh, your pros your project and have the first functionality 
and then even scale with it to, as you said, maybe a couple of thousand users, and you don't really have to worry about it, right? And if you have to, if you have a problem like that, okay, you throw some money at it, but the difference there is also maybe what a hundred dollars a month or so, maybe not that much. So it's very easy to just use what Postgres gives you and scale with it. And uh, I think that's maybe also the down, also a downside because then you never really get into that situation where you actually have to debug why your index isn't working or why you use that much RAM unless you, you yeah, get a user base of a couple of million people or so and then it's inevitable to do that kind of check. But yeah, it, it's a little bit like a... It's, it's really cool to use, really easy to use, but then it also makes you lazy, I guess. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Which is, I feel like, why at least some basic level of understanding how the different parts work together can be helpful to at least avoid some of these pitfalls, which is also why I asked it, what are some things you might have wanted to know at the beginning? Like, what are some common pitfalls to avoid, right? But which is why we ended up at indexes. <laughs> have you actually heard of the website called was Use Use the Index? Have you heard of them before? Yeah, yeah. You, o- you, always, you always Luke. know the weirdest things, Alan. It came up because I was looking for something in Postgres and there's a website called usetheindexluke.com. Obviously, it's supposed to like use the force and they, they cover basically the whole thing is about like why you should be using indexes and how each index works and they break it down. DB2, which I'm not quite sure exactly what that one is. I think that's some Oracle one. And MySQL, Oracle, Postgres, and SQL Server and they talk about Stuff and it seems pretty updated because it says they they can they they run tests from Postgres nine to through fourteen, which is pretty recent. I think fifteen is not quite out yet. And we can can include a link to it in the show notes, and then people can check it out. <laughs> so yeah, use index. Indexes are great, and understand how indexes work. Hey there, this is Charles Maxwood. I'm excited because I wanted to let you know about this thing that I pulled together that I had just I've been dying to have this for years, and I never felt like I could. And then I just realized that there's no reason why I can't. So um, I'm putting together a book club and we're going to read development focused books, career books, you know, uh, technical books, whatever. The first book that we're going to do is going to be Clean Architecture by Uncle Bob Martin. If you're not familiar with Clean Code or some of the other stuff that Bob has done, check that out. I've also talked to him on the Clean Coders podcast, which is on Top End Devs. But uh, yeah, we're going to get on. He's going to show up to some of our meetings. And what I'm thinking is we'll probably have like five or six people uh, part of the conversation along with Bob and I at the same time. And we'll just, uh, so somebody can come on, they can ask their question and then we'll just ro- rotate people through. So we'll we'll mute one person, unmute another person when it's their turn to come on and, and be part of the discussion. So we'll do that for like an hour, hour and a half. And then the other part of it that I'm putting together is just kind of a meet and greet gather area on Gather Town. And so after the the meetup and the call, what we'll do is we'll all go over to Gather Town and you can just log in, walk up to a group and have a conversation. And that way we can all kind of get to know each other and and make friends and and get to know people across the world. Uh, one thing that I'm finding is that, yeah, the meetups are starting to come back, but a lot of people don't have the opportunity to go to a meetup. And I really want to meet you guys and talk to you. So we're going to put all that together. It'll all be part of that book club. You can go to topendevs.com slash book club to be part of it. And I'm looking forward to seeing you there. The first book club meeting will be in December, the beginning of December. We're starting the first week of December. And um, you'll also be part of the conversation about which book we do next. I have one in mind, but I want to see where everybody's at. So there you go. Um, so maybe getting back to the to the topic at hand. So you I'm actually curious, maybe before you we go into the gritty bits, is like have you yet were you able to apply any of this, Peter? Like at work in production, like where you said, hey, now I I know about full text search now. So 
this is a problem and actually this is a hammer and this is a nail that's hammered in right i'm sad to say that no i have not used it <laughs> but i would feel much more comfortable using it however i have not used full text search but at, at the company i work at at remote um we have of course name search so we have what mm -hmm. like Tens, ten thousands of users, and we need to uh, search for the names. And the the blog post I wrote first is exactly about that. And it uses I like the I like or the similarity operator, and especially it also looks into how you can speed that up. Because there, the fun fact is, if you put the similarity thing on the right side, you don't use the index. If you put it on the left side, you use the index. So like, it's a very small nitty gritty thing. Why is that? I would. I would I don't know exactly why. I guess Postgres understands again the right side is a dynamic field and the left side is a static field, but it's actually not. Like it's a little bit more complicated than that. I can recommend to to look either at my blog post or other articles that wrote about this. But it's one of these like very small details that you need to look out for. And after I wrote that blog post, I went to our code base and checked how we do it, and we did it exactly wrong. But again, also Allison said, like it wasn't a, like we didn't even notice. Because if mm -hmm. it takes, you know, five milliseconds or a hundred milliseconds, still it's fast enough for our users to use it. So, you know, we never optimize for it. But it was one of these things, like when you learn about it, and then it's like exactly as you said, Sasha, where if you have a hammer, you're looking for a nail. And well, if you know about this, you look into your code base and you find the nails which are which are wrong. So But now the other thing that I kind of ran into is I went once you had a couple of queries speed up dramatically from indexes or or whatever, you're like, oh. I'm going to find some more and you start going crazy or adding indexes to everything. Now, how do you know what things you should be kind of optimizing, which ones you shouldn't? Because I think once you get started, you're like, oh, I see something over here. I see something over there. That was kind of something I ran into once I started seeing the power of indexes and et cetera. Yeah, it's definitely um, a trade-off. And I would say you need to have observability of your system anyway. So maybe set up Datadoc or something where you can trace which queries you run and look at which ones you actually run and uh, where you, you know, because you, you can set up an index for every single field in your database, but it doesn't make sense if you never use the index, right? And this is just going to blow up your, your database storage capacities uh, or the, the need for that. And it's also going to slow down any insertions you make into the database because the index, like if you have a, a schema with 10 fields and you have 10 indexes, if you insert a single schema, you need to create, uh, you need to add um, 10 fields to 10 different indexes. So it actually really slows down your insertion right there. So it's one of these things where you need to think about, do I insert more? Do I read more? All these trade-offs. So yeah, don't just create an index because you might need it in the future. I would rather say go without index until you see a problem and then add it. I wanted to, because you also mentioned other people and you, that you learn about, like uh, your sources where you learn things. And I must say, I learn a lot from a person on Twitter called Tobias Petri. He's another German, and I think it's tobiaspetri.sql. He is the database guy, he calls himself, and he posts these little snippets of ideas or of tips about using Postgres and MySQL especially, which is really interesting. And he also has a monthly newsletter, which I follow. So if you not really spend a lot of time on learning Postgres and reading books and stuff, but if you just want to learn something on the side every now and then when you browse your Twitter feed, maybe follow Tobias Petri. Highly recommend. His website also, if you want to check it out, you can put it in the show notes. It's sql4devs.com, all written together. So it's potentially also something you might want to check out. What I also want to say too is for that same project, uh, another thing I do is I ended up using... What is the name of that tool? I forgot how you, you can gather statistics about everything. Sorry, I forgot the name. Um, you can attach and you can look for um, uh, the repo query and you can get the query time. 
And what I did was anything that was longer than 300 milliseconds, I would log out the query. Then it would kind of help me to figure out where some, some things were going a little bit slow. So I didn't need like Datadog or something. What is the name of that thing called again? I would be interested too. Yeah, telemetry. That's right. Sorry, it's been a while. Yeah, telemetry. That that's super useful. Uh, I think to at least so you don't need like the so in case you have something like locally or whatever, you could just use that to start getting an idea about where some things could be going wrong. Can you explain how how did you do that? I never really work with telemetry. Oh, finally, I know something somebody else doesn't know. That that feels good. <laughs> <laughs> well, we yeah. already established that this okay. this is how we learn. Just talk okay. about it in the podcast. Yeah. Just remember, you know, I know what I'm talking about. Anyways, <laughs> so actually, I saw this on a blog post somewhere, so I'm not going to say it was all my idea. But so in, I don't know, actually, I don't even know if this is the right thing to do. But so in my application.ex file, I added in uh, telemetry.attach. I just called it ecto-logger. And then it's the name of your application that's running. And then repo query. So these are all obviously, uh, it's a list of, what do you call it, of atoms. And you attach the handle event function, which is uh, already a fork. And in your handle event, I don't like Visual Studio Code. It seems it's not easy to like command click into where you want to go. There we go. Okay, it actually worked this time. Anyways, the, the second argument will give you query time, which is in some kind of strange time format. And then you have to use system.convert time unit and convert it from native milliseconds over or whatever this time is to native milliseconds. And then you can also get the query and the parameters for that query in the, the third argument also. So what I do is I, I do a logger.warn. So that way I just look for warnings and I kind of alert those. And then I use just format, you know, query time, you know, how many milliseconds with query, about the query with params and give the params and just inspect the params. So it kind of gives me more idea because otherwise you just get the query with all these question marks or, or dollar signs. I forgot what, what it's using in this uh, format. And you want to know what it is and what the data is because it could be a specific user or something, right? So I want to get as much information as possible. It's quite interesting. Actually, now that you said it, I also looked at a recent project that I just generated, like a Phoenix project, and it had the live dashboard included. And if you include that, actually, it sets up for you some telemetry metrics as well. So if you generate yeah. a Phoenix Live View project with live dashboard, then you go to telemetry X and then you actually see some database metrics and VM metrics as well. So maybe you can use that as an inspiration too. But this is a you, great tip. You'll get an idea at least about, you know, what that something's happening, but I don't think you'll have an idea about which part of your query is is giving the problem, which is what I was trying to solve. Right. Because you needed to have the inputs as well, like the user. Yeah, you know which query, kind of right? That I can yeah, run it locally definitely. and figure out what's going on. Right. I think yeah. Sasha is actually probably has more experience with telemetry than maybe any of us. Nah. I mean Okay. So again, I'm the master of telemetry in this room. So I've used it. That's about it. <laughs> but never in anger, you know. That is I feel where where most of, of the valuable learnings come from when you use something in anger. There's also this very great book, Along in Anger, which is basically about that. Yeah, I, I never really understood what that term actually means. It just means that when you use it like furiously and it means that when you use it in to to such a degree where you encounter the ugly words and the where where it breaks down, right? And then you really learn about okay, the nitty-gritty details of, of technology where okay. If I push it to its limits, then it acts like that, and I can overcome it by doing this. And then the, at that point, basically, where, where like a piece of technology you're using transitions from, hey, I know about this and I learned about it, to I've actually used this thing in production and it made me angry. <laughs> so now I know its limits and I, I can know better when to use it and when not, you know? Because I mean, I, I think we all of us remember, not, not all of us, I guess, but 
a lot of people, I guess, remember the time when like MongoDB kind of kind of came into the market. Everybody was like, it's web scale. It solves all your problems, right? And then, well, reality is more complex than that. Is, um, is a document database suitable for every problem? No. Is it suitable for some? Yes. But as usual, it depends. And that is what I mean when I say using it in anger. And I have not used telemetry in anger yet. I feel like every Java developer is done Java in anger. That makes sense. I always hear a lot of stories from these veteran Java developers, like, you know, the JVM is like this, and the memory is like the memory is mapped out like this. It's like I don't no idea how the memory is mapped out in Erlang and stuff, but it just kind of works. Like I never had to know about all this weirdness. Yeah, I, I feel the same. Actually, I recently I tried to write another blog post, as I do, about the software design, especially design patterns. And when you get into design patterns, you very quickly find books about Java and C Sharp, and they explain mm-hmm. very nicely how you can have a factory or like a builder pattern and and do all these nasty, oh not nasty, very beautiful things. <laughs> And the, th- the fun thing is, I-, I thought, okay, this sounds cool. Let's take, what did I take? A factory pattern, I think. And let's let's do it in Erlang. Uh, sorry, in Elixir. And it's like, oh, it's just a pipe. It's like, you know, you have a user and then you have a next function with name and the next function with age and next function with location. And now it's a factory, apparently. But, you know, if you actually do it in Java, because you have the the, the types, like the, the object, the classes, you need to, you know, define all these classes. And if you don't, well, there isn't like an any class, like you have in TypeScript, where you can just say, ah, oh, I don't care about this, it should just be any. Well, then you actually need to be really, uh, yeah, imagining, like you need to imagine a good solution. And the funny thing is like in Java and C Sharp, you need these kind of things. So it's like, literally you need to understand these patterns otherwise you can't do what you want then in elixir you don't even need to know about these kind of things you just need to build it as you want to so i always find it funny when when people explain me these like beautiful things about java and i'm like you ellen i think like why should i know about this why do i need to know about this just the language should take care of this for me i'm not sure who said it so i'm I'm, I'm gonna have to quote somebody without knowing who i'm quoting is i've read that basically Design patterns are more often than not, or not always, but more often than not, a workaround for a limitation of a language, which does ring true to a certain degree. I would say so. Yeah, I mean, at least I tried to apply some of the patterns to Elixir and it didn't work. It was really weird to implement it that way. But, you know, you also have some bigger ones like a facade or like an interface pattern, adapter pattern, these kind of things. It's, It's not something, if it's big enough, then it's language independent, I would say, language agnostic. But those, you you know, it's like a handful and you most likely use them already, but you just never heard the name adapter, mm-hmm. for example, or interface, but you use it anyway. So, yeah, it's one of these things where, again, you should be forced to use them. Like, for example, if you generate a Phoenix project, what do you get? Contexts. What are contexts? I would say interfaces, you know, to interface with the with the, with the database logic, depending on how you use it. But, you know, immediately when you generate a library, you're really, you're, immediately have that that pattern in your face and you don't even know it's called that. Yeah, and, and also, well, I mean, we do have some kinds of patterns, right? If I think the, there's the book by, by um, some Prague Prague writer, I forgot the, who, Bruce, and I forgot the other guy who wrote this book about um, how to structure your apps, right? With the beehive, the, I think it's the Busy Bees or Angry Bees or something. I forgot what the acronym was, but they talk about how to, how to structure your app. So we, we do kind of have some kind of design patterns because you have to have some kind of pattern or design or else your code will just be spaghetti, right? Like a very simple thing, I think, was, um, if I remember correctly, so I'm going to the Live View book recently, and, and, and I believe they talk about um, that in your context function, that's where things can go wrong, but in your module function, things should never go wrong. So like you would see the change set stuff be inside of your module, 
for like that specific struct, you know, like a person or whatever. But the context like zoo, that would, you know, the zoo could either, it could create an animal or it could not. And that's where things can can happen, right? That's where you, and so that's that's a way of design pattern, right? Yeah, I think that that's like where the line gets blurry. Some would say that's an architectural pattern, like keeping uncertainty at the edges of your system and then having inside in the core of your system being, having this beautiful world where everything works, which makes it easier to like work in that context. And then when you kind of have to cross the threshold from the met- messy outside world into this beautiful inner world, that is where uncertainty should be lying. Otherwise, you get into a state where some parts of your system maybe assume a thing works, some parts don't, and then it becomes harder to work with. I'm not not sure if you... I, I personally wouldn't necessarily call that a design pattern, more of an architectural pattern to make m- m- writing maintainable software more easy. But like I said, the line gets blurry here. So how, how would you describe it then? How, what, how, what's the difference between the two? You know, in, in your... A design pattern is like something where like a specific way how you arrange some code to achieve a specific goal. And like what you just said is more like more of an architectural principle. Like it, it's not, you don't say I, I, I can use it. I can write a bunch of code and like it always is self-encapsulating a certain type of behavior because that's kind of what design pattern does, right? Like it, it gives you a certain type of behavior for a piece of code and then you can kind of have it encapsulated and do things with it while an architectural principle is more of, okay, if you follow this, you get these benefits, but it's more of like a bigger picture kind of thing. But that would be my my take on it. So take it with a grain of salt. I haven't, I haven't eaten wisdom of a spoon. I haven't been fed wisdom of a spoon. That that's that's the saying. Yeah, I find it interesting because I I have a master in software engineering and distributed systems, and our professor is, he, you know, he said basically if you have architectural patterns, he couldn't even describe what is the difference between an architectural pattern and a software design pattern and so on. And I ended up with the definition that if you have an architectural pattern, it is on a, like a hardware in a hardware level, so to say. So an architectural pattern could be something with microservices where you have different patterns and so on. If you have a single server, then it's very hard to apply that architectural pattern. So then you rather have a design pattern, so to say. So the the MVP, model view, MVC, sorry, MVC, a model view controller pattern, that is something where you can have all the classes, all the modules in a single server. And I would call that a design pattern, but yeah, it's not that easy. But in your case, Ellen, I would also say it's more like a coding principle where you say every service, every like mod- module that I have, it should be, yeah, like independent, so to say, or like encapsulated. It should only do its own thing and not worry about the world outside, so to say. But I also heard different things where like the if you have a higher level, like a, a handler or like an application service that uses different modules. So for example, a controller, right? A Phoenix controller where you get a request in, for example, that controller could also just orchestrate different services. And then these services might give back a true, like, okay or an error. And based on that, the orchestrator, the controller, does something differently. Like, we know that when you, for example, uh, try to update something, like you have an update endpoint in the controller and you want to update a user, for example, well, the first thing you do is check whether the user exists. Right, and uh, if that doesn't exist, then you don't do the the rest of the of the request. So that that would like that's another thing I read already. So it's I think it's more a principle, a coding principle, where you decide for yourself how you want to code it, and then you just communicate with everybody else so that everybody tries to code the same way. So that if you go through another person's module, you know that 
um, it will look a certain way and it's easier for you to understand how it should behave. And uh, if you need to debug, then you can easily see why it doesn't behave as it should. So Yeah, I always tend to say that most design principles, architecture patterns, so on and so forth, they boil down to us hu- making us humans able to understand these complex code bases because we are not very good at a lot of complexity in a small amount of space. It's just our brains are not wired for that. In theory, if like we could understand arbitrarily complex stuff, we could just create one big file and put all of our code in there and that would be fine. But well, we're not good at that. <laughs> so we have these design principles, we have these architectural patterns to make it easier for people at the end of the day to understand code because the machine at the end of the day, like, there's this one binary, it doesn't care, right? And some people even do that. Like if you look at remoteok.com, I think the, the person who wrote it, Levels, I think it's called Peter Levels, he has, it's a single PHP file. Like it's one of the yeah. biggest remote job boards in the world and it's a single PHP file, just index PHP. And he, he coded it in like a, a weekend or something. So it even works sometimes, yeah. Maybe to, to give like, to round it up with another quote, which I also find relevant here. Architecture is about the important stuff, whatever that is. That was said by Ralph Johnson in Design Patterns, Elements of Reusable Object-Oriented Software, which I think closes the circle nicely. <laughs> exactly, I agree. <laughs> Okay, we kind of went on a tangent here about design patterns and software architecture, which I think is interesting also for our listeners. But is there anything you would like to to say about text search, Peter? Because that, that was the original topic, right? And we, we, we kind of scratched at the surface. But since you're the expert here, quite literally compared to me and Alan, um, is there anything you would like to share and let listeners know, like when they maybe dive into the topic of course they can check out your blog post but is there anything else you like i said earlier where you feel some valuable learnings have been gleaned and some some resources you you would be willing to share or some some details about how to use this in elixir that kind of thing which is maybe not as not readily visible from from a blog post sure well the, the first thing is i can't really reference any other resource that has all these pieces together and that's why I wrote the blog post that I wrote. And that's why it's a complete guide to full text search with Postgres and Ecto. Because, yeah, you can do their own research, but then you still have to read like 10, 15 different articles to understand it. I really like the Postgres documentation. However, it is a little bit difficult to understand it. But usually what I did when I learned about these things is I'll, I read the Postgres documentation first. Whenever I didn't understand something, I basically just copy-pasted that line into Google and mostly there was a Stack Overflow question about exactly that part. So it's it's very too too easy to um, uh, to take that apart, the documentation, learn about it. Yeah. So in that case, uh, yeah, I would say. So what I what I would give as an advice as well, uh, as you said earlier as well, Sasha, is um, before you reach for Elasticsearch, give Postgres full text search a spin or a try at least, and see whether it works for you. Because yeah. The the best uh, whoever said that I, uh, I I forgot but I think it was Dave Luca in your last uh, one of the last episodes he said that the coolest thing about the, the, the uh, about Postgres the greatest thing is about Postgres is that it's probably already in your stack anyway so you know if you have a Phoenix framework a uh, Phoenix library uh, sorry project then immediately you will have Postgres so just you know it's something we can quickly and easily add add to the project and if it really doesn't work out you can reach for Elasticsearch but yeah you will have a much harder time to implement it quickly and to maintain it too and you have a higher uh, server invoice as well so try it out first before reaching for something you might not need postgres is really ending up as this one like uh, swiss knife of tools like where 
kind of kind of can do everything. It's crazy, seriously. I I love it to death, but it's it's getting ridiculous to be honest. <laughs> Not sure how you feel about that, but it's really at this point where oh, Erlang Postgres or Elixir Postgres is all you need. I realize that every time when I think, oh, I need this special thing, you know, like I, I need to run this special query or something, and then I Google it. And the first results are always how to do it in Postgres. And so it's, it's one of these things where what, like 99% of use cases, it's, it has already covered. Like they thought about that already a couple of years ago and there are, there's plenty of documentation for it. So yeah, it's probably, it's literally, it's one of these things where you just, like it's like a very nice car where everybody like knows how to drive the car and how to use the steering wheel and, and gas mm-hmm. pedal and everything. But none, like very few of us are like true mechanics. And whenever something goes really wrong with the car, only a few of us can understand what's wrong. So it's the same with Postgres, I think. It's very easy to use Postgres. You know, everybody knows the, the, how to do a query there. But if it goes wrong, you need an expert. And I think you can you know, be the expert and open the handbook and see in your car handbook you know, how to fix something yourself first. So I would encourage people to do that. I would plus one of that, but also say um, don't be afraid of it because uh, Postgres actually comes with a fair bit of very useful tools. So like the query explainer, for example, is something where you can say explain within this query. And there, yeah, there's some terminology and some, some <coughs> details you will have to read up on. But the first time I did that, it was surprisingly easy to follow along. And yeah, I had to look up some details in the documentation of Postgres, but it all made sense. And at that point, you actually realized yet again, there's no magic here. I mean, Postgres is a really solid piece of technology. A lot of people have worked on it and it, it has tested stood the test of time, but it's still not just that. It's a piece of technology which you can understand, and there's no magic going on under the hood. Maybe except for the whole time handling. That that kind of is quite magic. I would I would like to make two notes about this. So I think Postgres is great, but there are two things. Well, there are two tools missing. Postgres itself is great, but if you work with Postgres, I think two things are missing. And if anybody out there wants to start a little side project, start up with that thing. I'm more than happy to pay the money to for the tool one one of them is actually it's more like a book really so ellen you said earlier the uh use the index uh, look yeah. website that already shows you how to use indices in in postgres and that's great but i really miss like a proper book that explains you like a postgres for the rest of us kind of book you know that explains to you okay uh if you have any problems like dive in here or like this is how you do full text search for example so it would be part of that book i, I miss that because it's very fragmented the the knowledge base of that. And the second thing is a proper tool that gives you very like easy, understandable instructions about how to read the explain, analyze output of your query. Because until this day, I don't understand it fully. I see it <laughs> and then I, <laughs> I I just copy paste parts of it into Google and try to understand what it does. And even if you see index somewhere and you're like happy and you think, why doesn't, it's great, it's using my index, but why is it still slow? And then, well, you know, if you have a filter underneath that index, it still means that it does a sequence scan, for example. And I did not know that. And it's one of these things where you you just see like, text on your screen and there's no explanation to it whatsoever so if somebody out there wants to create a or maybe there's a cool tool already that really goes step through step through that output and explains to you oh your problem is probably here because that's a sequence scan and you don't want that so one of these things that would be great to have yeah the only thing i can think of is i mean i use pg admin 4 and you can run the explain and there's parts that get highlighted in like yellow and then red for sure red i believe 
and you're like, I'm, that's where I'd look at. I'm like, oh, what is that? And you can basically start drilling down because I think everything starts at like a high level and then you have to kind of open up a tree and keep following down to see which part's the problem. But then you could just see, oh, that that's weird. And then you have to think about the query and you're like, okay, this is because of this part. I should probably add an index here and that usually solves most of the issues. But if you start oh, cool. skipping then indexes, then that's something I'm not really sure of. That, that I think I'd probably start scratching my head and getting confused unless you could just say, oh, I mean, it's hard. I mean, because it sounds like you just said, oh, yeah, I remember this and this would block in. But how do you how do you do that out without, if there's a tool that could tell you, oh, we didn't do this route because of this, that would be nice to have. Yeah, I get what you're saying. This one part of, of like explain, analyze, wait, basically the reason why it does it that way, that that, that is sometimes not easily gleanable. Because yeah. sometimes it's like you add, like you, you start like ripping apart the query and you're like, okay, let me just cut this out and then see how it runs. And you add one part and you're like, well, why the hell is this one thing not work? It doesn't really make sense. Okay. Any last words before we wrap it up and kind of slowly transition to bigs? Okay, then Peter, if people want to reach you, how do they do that? I am very active on Twitter, which is PJ Ulrich, U-L-L-R-I-C-H, or my personal website, PeterUlrich.com. Have you ever wished that you had a group of people that were just as passionate about writing code as you are? I know I did. I did that for most of my career. I'd go to the meetups. I'd try and create other opportunities. And it was just really hard, right? The meetups, I got some of that, but they were only like once or twice a month. And it was just really hard to find that group of people that I connected with and, and really wanted to, you know, talk about code a lot, right? I mean, I love writing code. I think it's the best. And so I've decided to create this community and create it a, a worldwide community that we can all jump in and do it. So we're going to have two workshops every week. One of those or two of those every month are going to be Q&A calls, right, where you can get on, you can ask me or me and another expert questions. Uh, the rest of them are going to be focused on different aspects of career or programming or things like that, right? So it'll go anywhere from like deployments and containers all the way up to managing your 401k and negotiating your benefits package. Well, we'll cover all of it, okay? And then we're also going to have meetups every month for your particular technology area. So we have shows about JavaScript, React, Angular, Vue, and so on. We're going to have meetups for all of those things. I'm going to revive the freelancer show. We'll have one about that, right? So you can get started freelancing or continue freelancing if that's where you're at. And I'm working on finding authors who can actually do weekly video tutorials on something for 10 minutes that's related, to, again, to those technology areas so that you can stay current and keep growing. So if you're interested, go to topendevs.com slash sign up and you can get in right now for $39. When we're done, that price is going to go up to $75. And the $39 price gets you access to two calls per week. The, the full price at $150, which is going to be $75 over the next few weeks, that price is going to get you access to all of the calls and all of the tutorials and everything else that we put out from Top End Devs along with member pricing for our remote conferences that are coming up next year. So go check it out, topendevs.com slash sign up. Okay, then let us go to picks. And Alan, is there a Rust book this week? Uh, I haven't had time to play around with Rust. But no, what, what I do have for you, which is pretty cool, I actually, I've been working on, well, I'm, I'm working on another project. We have a React front-end and an Elixir back-end. And somebody re suggested that we use Cypress to do end-to-end -end testing. Have you guys ever heard of Cypress before? I mean, it looks like Peter has. Okay, both of you. Yeah, I just heard of Cypress now. There's a really, really awesome video that came from ElixirConf Africa. I don't know if you guys have seen this one, where the guy talks about how you can use Cypress with Elixir. And it's 
it really goes quite in depth. Uh, and I think it's really good video if you're interested in doing some kind of end-to-end testing and you have uh, like an SPA. It's really cool. And, and basically, you can also have it set up so that you can actually run your tests in parallel. So that's even more exciting because, yeah, who doesn't want to run their stuff in parallel when you can, right? So I'll, I'll link the video. Nice. Peter, do you want to do any picks? I only have one sure. weird nerd pick, so I'm going to pick that last. Okay, no problem. I have three picks which are actually not related. Well, one of them is related to software, but the other two are not really. So the first pick I recently watched on Netflix, Inside Man. It's a short series with four episodes, and it's really amazing. It's one of these situations where you don't like nobody knows how they ended up in that situation, but now they somehow have to get out of it, and it's kind of hilarious, but also tragic. So I, I would recommend you to to watch Inside Man. It's very interesting. Shall I do all the three picks at once? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Sure. The second pick I have is my most favorite podcast, next to Elixir Mix, of course, in the whole world. It's called Smashing Security. It's about cybersecurity and other topics, and it's been running, well, I don't know, six years already. And fun fact about that, I'm one of the like first listeners of Smashing Security, and back in the day in 2018, I really wanted to be on that on that uh, podcast, so I created my own podcast, which was called Explain Blockchain about blockchain stuff, and I sent it to the the people at Smashing Security, and they found it interesting, so they invited me for a guest talk there as well. And yeah, until this day, I, I've I've listened to these people in. Africa on my motorcycle and all different kinds of parts in the world. And this always makes you laugh. So highly recommended. And uh, well, the, the last pick that I have is a little bit to toot my own horn because I wrote a book and I would like to pitch it to you or to recommend you to to check it out. It's called Building Table Views with Phoenix Live View. It's on Prackbrock, currently in beta, um, but it's very close to the final version. So if you buy it, that's pretty much what you get. And yeah, if you have any, if you read it and you have any recommendations, or if you don't like something about it, so yeah, I'm always open to discuss it, uh, especially on Twitter. And that's it. Nice. Good balance of picks. I like it. I'm, like I said, I'm just going to have one weird nerd pick this week. And that is a video game I've been playing. And it's it's not niche, but it's still an indie game. So there's good chance a lot of people don't know about it it's called inscription and i'm just gonna say this if you like are a fan of like trading card-esque games like something like hearthstone then you should give, really give this thing a spin it's not strictly about that i mean that is the core of the gameplay but it also does a lot of interesting things with its narrative where as soon as you finish act one the game does change substantially and not necessarily, not 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 only link, uh, limited to the mechanics, but also like the look of a game changes. So like it, it kind of plays with a player and and at least scratches on that fourth wall without saying too much. So it does unexpected things, and it's 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 a wide ride. <laughs> it's a really wide ride. But it, at the core, it always stays this trading kind of card game esque gameplay. So if you like that, then definitely give it a, a, a try. If that is not your jam, then you're not going to have a lot of fun with this. But it's I, I, nowadays I've played so many games in my life that I'm always um, happy when I, I find a game which like does something unexpected and like something I haven't quite seen like that yet. And this definitely scratched that itch for, it for me. So give inscription a spin, a spin if that sounds interesting to you. Sounds interesting. I'm still busy with God of War, the old version, not the newest one. And that's also enough uh, surprises Excellent for game. me. I, I yeah. really, really enjoyed the God of War, the, 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 the re- reboot kind of. So, yeah. Okay. 
then thank you for being on the show, Peter. It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And you all tune in next time with another episode of Elixir Mix. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.